you to open your Bibles, electronic devices, things like that, to the book of John. The Gospel of John is where we'll be together. We'll be in chapter 2, and I'd love to talk with you and preach to you this morning about the wedding at Cana. The wedding at Cana. It's a great, great story. Uh, It's uh, the recording of the first miracle and sign that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John. If you're familiar at all with the Gospel of John, uh, then you may be aware that it reads a little bit differently than the rest of the Gospels, the ones that we would call the Synoptic Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we would call Synoptic Gospels, and they kind of read like a comic book, actually. It's Jesus was here. He went to this place. He said this thing. He did this action, performed this miracle, said this thing. This person said this. It's very linear, right? So it almost reads like a comic book. Well, the Gospel of John doesn't really do that at all. It's not near as linear as the other ones. It's organized very, very differently. It's way more poetic, and it's like artistic and designed specifically. And the place we see that the most is at the very beginning of these Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew begins with the genealogy, which I know I just lost you because I used the word genealogy, and I'm sure you've skipped that scripture before, but it begins with a genealogy of Jesus to Abraham, and it's establishing Jesus as part of Abraham's family. And then the Gospel of Mark begins with Jesus' baptism at John the Baptist's hands in the River Jordan. And then the Gospel of Luke actually records a lot of Mary's story, and it gives us a different perspective leading into Jesus' life beginning. And then the Gospel of John is what we would call extra. It begins with this incredibly deep and artistic poem that ties Jesus back to the very beginning of time. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it even goes on to say that that Word became flesh and came to dwell with men. And it's that part of the poem at the beginning of John here that's actually going to set a theme that's super apparent in our story for today. See, what John does is he sets Jesus in the writer's room, so to speak, of the creation of our universe, and then says that this Word was Jesus, it was God, and it put on flesh, became a man, the man Jesus of Nazareth. And he put on flesh and he came to dwell with men. And this Greek word, to dwell with men, is actually, if we were to translate, translate that literally, it means Jesus pitched his tent with men. It means that Jesus pitched his tent with men. And this is a subtle wink for us. I'm sorry, Mike. I might, I might do a different mic. Is that okay with you? Sorry, guys. We're going to work this out just real quick. It's kind of popping on me. They'll bring it up as we go. Thank you, Austin. Anyways... What John is trying to do in this poem is establish Jesus as as being there from the beginning, but he's also trying to establish Jesus with this idea of the tabernacle, which was a large tent that the Israelite people used in the Old Testament. Thank you so much. Y'all give Austin a hand this morning. Thank you so much. Our tech team is always so good to me. I'm just going to take this off. Can you hear me now? Good. That's an old commercial from when I was a kid. John is trying to tie Jesus back with this idea of the tabernacle. Are you with me? If you're with me, say I am. We're back at the tabernacle? Okay. The tabernacle was the place where God's presence was with the people of God, right? With the Israelite people, his presence dwelt in the tabernacle. It was a system of tents that housed his presence and also these other artifacts that were designed to point the people towards the Lord. And John is trying to tie Jesus back into this idea of the tabernacle by saying he came to pitch his tent among men. If I can make that noun a verb, he came to tabernacle with 
men. And it's this idea that in the man of Jesus of Nazareth, heaven and earth are becoming one. Heaven and earth are colliding together, and miraculous things are going to happen. Miraculous things are going to happen. And that's what the first half of John is going to explain to us, because he formats his gospel around these seven miracles or signs that Jesus performs. But John calls them signs for a reason, because it is not about the power that Jesus displays or the power that he has. It's actually about what that power is pointing to. It's a sign of something else. And so in our scripture today, the story of the wedding at Cana, the story of Jesus turning water into wine, which I hope is not a spoiler for you, even if you've not been around church, I imagine you've heard that really awesome story about Jesus saving a party one time, turns the water into wine. That this, this theme of heaven and earth colliding in the man of Jesus is apparent even in this story. So let me read it for you this morning. We'll be in John chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 through 11. Why don't I pray as we begin together? Bow your heads with me. Jesus, we love and we trust you, and we simply ask that your will would be done today. Lord, speak to us fresh and new through this beautiful story of the sign of Jesus at the wedding in Cana. Lord, we love you. We trust you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 say this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, and he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. And so this story on the surface, many of us may have heard it before. It seems pretty straightforward. There's a wedding. It's a big deal. They run out of wine. Jesus rushes in, turns water into wine, and saves the party, right? It feels very straightforward. And it says his glory is revealed and people put their faith in him. And so it feels on the surface straightforward, but, but it's written in such a way that the second time you read back through it and the third time you read back through it, maybe it feels a little bit clunky, Maybe it feels like there are details here that it doesn't make sense for them to be or other details that aren't included that probably should be. And that's because John, this, this gospel of John, John the writer, he doesn't teach the same way that our teachers teach today. He teaches with subtlety and, and poetic beauty, and, and he's trying to enroll us in a process of thinking. And so he's leaving us little breadcrumbs along the way to understand the story in a deeper way that on the second and the third and the fourth and the 127th time that you read this story, you're still seeing the fresh message of the gospel that Jesus is beginning here in this moment. One of the uh, details that I'd love to just give as an example is this conversation that we have between Jesus and his mother Mary. 
where it's kind of strange because Mary says, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. Jesus says, it's not my problem. And then Mary turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you, which as an aside, as Charlie would say, this one's for free. If I could give you any piece of advice, it's what Mary said. Do what Jesus told you. Do, do what he says, okay? That one's for free, as we say. But this conversation is strange, right? Because we're not exactly getting all of the context here, and we don't understand maybe why Jesus says, not my problem, but then also still performs the sign and the miracle. There's not altogether this detail given to that conversation, and yet we have a full-blown conversation between the master of ceremony and the bridegroom who aren't even named, right? These details seem on, on the third and the fourth, the, the, when we look back into this story, like it's strange that some details are included and others are not. And it's like I said, John is teaching us in a different way. He's trying to enroll us in a way of looking at Jesus and looking at the world. There's actually a really great way to illustrate this by using an actual illustration, art. I'd love to show you a piece of art from Tim Noble and Sue Webster. It was in the Boston, Massachusetts Gallery of something or another many years ago, and it's actually a famous piece of art. Obviously, I know a lot about art because I know where it's from, but if you guys wouldn't mind showing it to us real quick, but this is what we would call shadow art, and what you see is a table full of garbage, but when you point a light at it, it creates a cityscape right? It creates a skyline, a beautiful image. Now, if you walked into a room and that light wasn't on and all you saw was a table full of really strange looking trash, you'd think, wow, art really is dead. But also, it wouldn't make any sense at all, right? Because it's a bunch of random, seemingly irrelevant things kind of sitting on a table. There's beer cans and beer bottles and there's a used Target there and there's a Pepsi cans and another soda that I won't name until they pay me to talk about it. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that seems not related. But the moment you shine the light in the correct angle and the correct way at it, all of a sudden, it really is art. All of a sudden, it creates something that has beauty and has detail far beyond what you would have imagined. And this is where this is going to be helpful for us in the book of John. The, the, the details that we see here in the gospel story, what it requires of us is to read it in light of the other stories of the gospel, what we already know of who Jesus is. We read that back into the scripture. We allow the scripture to interpret the scripture, as we would say. We have to take a step back and shine the light of the gospel just to be cliche, we have to shine the light of the gospel back into this story. And that's how we begin to see these details working in a new, in a different way. And it begins to enroll us in a different perspective of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And so the first detail that I want us to kind of shine some more light on, and we're going to have to take a step back in order to do that, is the reaction of the disciples. The decision of the disciples in this story. What it says is that Jesus performs this miraculous sign and then the disciples' reaction to him is to put their faith in him. And this is part of the entire setup for the book of John and for the next few stories that we'll read. Because all of these stories are designed to kind of reflect one another. Over the course of chapters, what we would know is John chapters 2 through 4 have multiple other stories of people doing the same thing. Of Jesus revealing himself, making a claim about himself, and allowing people to choose who they believe him to be. The very next story is a famous story of Jesus going to the temple in Jerusalem. And I'll read the next couple of verses for us. It's verses 12 through 18. It says this, after this, Jesus went to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, 
He found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so he made a whip out of cords and drove out all of them from the temple area. Both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it again. See, this story is highly designed for us to read it right back into the story right before. See, what Jesus does is right in the middle of it, he makes a claim about who he is and what he's attempting to do. He goes into the temple and he claims that Yahweh God, the the Jewish God, is my father. And John's actually going to explain later in his gospel that for Jesus to claim that God is his father is for him to say that he is equal with God. Right, and so Jesus makes this claim about himself that he is equal with God. And what is the reaction of the Jewish people in the temple? It's rejection. It's they demand of him, what authority do you have to do any of this? The reaction is dissension and rejection of Jesus, even though he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Jesus makes a claim and allows them to decide what they think about him. The very next story is a very, another very famous story. It's the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus and the Pharisee. And there's this Pharisee that no doubt knows exactly what happened in the temple that day and visits Jesus under the cover of night, probably because of the events of that day and doesn't want to be seen in public with Jesus. And he begins to ask Jesus these questions, and they have this incredible conversation about what the kingdom of God truly is like. And Jesus says, you will not be able to experience the kingdom of God unless you're born again of the Spirit. And then we get the, one of the most famous Bible scriptures is John 3.16, where Jesus says to this Pharisee, God has loved the world in this way that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And the Pharisee's reaction to this, to this claim Jesus makes, is famous. How can this be? How can this be? His reaction is confusion, and Jesus throws this right back at him and says, you're a teacher of the law and the Torah, and yet you still don't know the very Messiah that is standing before you. You still don't know the signs to look for. Jesus says, how can I explain to you the things of heaven if you do not understand the things of earth? This Pharisee has missed the proverbial forest for the trees. He's so hyper-focused in on teaching and Torah and law and this and that that he misses the reason that they're there is to call forward to this Messiah, the prophet that would speak the very words of God is what Deuteronomy describes Jesus as. The Pharisee, the person most likely to understand the Messiah, his reaction is confusion. His reaction is, I have no idea how to understand you. The next story it's the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, which Pastor Matt preached on pretty brilliantly just a few weeks ago. But Jesus makes claims about himself with her. They're sitting next to a well, and he makes claims about the contents of a well, but in regards to himself, he says, I am the living water. If you drank of the water that I gave you, you would have everlasting life. You would never thirst again. And then he doubles down on that claim, and he says, I am the Messiah that the Samaritans and the Jews have been waiting for. And what is this woman's reaction? Enthusiasm. 
She runs back to the city that she's from, and she proclaims to all the Samaritans around her, come and meet the man who told me everything I ever did. And it says many Samaritans believe and find Christ as a result of her testimony, of her going and speaking to them and reacting to him in enthusiasm. And so these stories are all set up and designed the exact same way. Jesus encounters someone, makes a claim about who he is, heaven colliding with earth, and allows these people to choose and decide whether they believe or not. And it's, and it's very much on purpose that these groups of people are at odds with one another. <clears throat> Excuse me. The people most likely to understand who Jesus was are the people who spend a lot of time in the synagogue and the courts where he cast the people out, and the Pharisees. Those are the two groups of people who should most understand the Scriptures and see the Messiah come, and yet these are the ones who deal rejection and confusion back towards him. These are the little details that just by simply taking a step back and shining a light at the story of the wedding at Cana, we begin to understand something that Jesus is revealing himself, and he's putting the ball in your court, so to speak. He is saying, it is now your turn to choose what you think I am, who you think I am, who do you believe I am to be. The next detail that I want to shine some light for us in is in verses 9 and 10 of John chapter 2, and it's this. It's the turning upside down of tradition, the turning over of tradition. Let me take us back to, to verse 9. It says, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best wine until now. And it's like I mentioned earlier, this seems like a strange detail to include. We get a whole conversation between the bridegroom and the master of ceremonies, but we don't have the full conversation between Mary and Jesus. And I believe that's because John wants us to pay attention to what is happening here. It's oddly specific that the master of the banquet is really quick to reference a Jewish cultural tradition in this first century Jewish wedding, that you bring out the good wine first and the bad wine second. Because none of us would have been picking up on that unless John was very specific to say it. None of us would understand these customs unless he specifically says it here in the text, and he is drawing our attention to this shifting of the order of the wines. As we continue to read the gospel, we see the turning over of tradition has its fingerprints all over Jesus' ministry. Jesus is really specific about changing the order of the good and the bad wines and how now because of the wine that he's created, the good wine was served second. And he's changed this tradition and gone against the grain of what the cultural norm would have been for this wedding. But all we need to do is look at Jesus' teaching, his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection even, to see that this turning over of tradition, flipping of the cultural norms, the changing of our expectations is all over his ministry. We can go to the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that's ever been preached on the side of a mountain where Jesus begins with the Beatitudes, and the first one that he says is that he blesses the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, which is the opposite 
of what we or the people of their day would have thought as blessed. To be poor in spirit was not to just be poor religiously, but also you had wealth or something like that. No, your, your spiritual reality was all of who you are, especially in the first century. So to say blessed are the poor in spirit was to say blessed are they physically poor the economically poor, those who have no influence, those who have no power, those who have nothing, the spiritually poor and broken. Those are who Jesus calls blessed. It's the opposite of what we would anticipate or expect or assume he would pronounce blessings over. Jesus carries this idea of turning cultural tradition over. He carries that with him up a hill called Golgotha to a cross where he gives his life for the ransom of many. What everyone else saw as defeat, Jesus sees as victory. See, this, this idea that Jesus is bringing a kingdom and he's come to, to bring a new rule. Many of the Jewish people of their day, what they expect and anticipated of Jesus claiming those things was that now he was going to throw off their Roman oppressors and establish a kingdom that would be powerful. And so for him to die was the opposite of what they saw as victory, which is why we have stories like the disciples on the Emmaus Road who are talking to Jesus and don't know it's Jesus. They say, have you not heard everything that's happened in Jerusalem? And he says, no, tell me what's gone on in Jerusalem. And they said, we really thought Jesus was the Messiah, but he died. What they saw as defeat, Jesus sees as victory. He's always turning these expectations over. This is why he's given a crown of thorns and not a crown of gold. is because he is trying to help us understand that victory is not what we might think it is. I'd love to prove this to you even more with a second piece of art. I told you, I'm really into art, so I'm going to show you a second one this weekend. The second picture is called the Aleximenos Graffito. Now, this is one of, if not the oldest piece of Christian art in the world and is uniquely anti-Christian. And what it says in the Greek here is that this is Alex and he's worshiping his God. And his God is a donkey on a cross. And this was created to mock Jesus because they were mocking the idea that, that his cross, that this was in any way a victory in everyone else's eyes. The cross of Jesus is defeat, but for him, it is the ultimate victory. It is him giving over his life that we might have life. Do you see how in every way, Jesus is trying to turn our expectations over. He's turning over what tradition would say or what cultural norm would say. He's turning it around because he wants us to see the upside-down nature of his kingdom to where we would begin to see victory more as who can I serve instead of what can I get from people. He's always turning it over and changing it. And it's this one teeny, tiny, seemingly insignificant detail in John's story, that he is enrolling us in this, this frame of mind that Jesus is trying to turn things over in your life. He is trying to shape your expectations of what life really is, what life and life to the full is. It's found in servanthood. It's found in giving yourself over for others the way he has done. The last and the final detail that I want to zero in on for a second that I want to shine some light on for a moment is probably, probably the crux of the story, and it's the turning of the water to wine, the water turning to wine. And it's this transformation 
that will become a theme throughout the rest of Scripture, not just the Gospel of John, but all of Scripture. And there are details here that are important not to miss and not to gloss over. The Scripture draws our attention to a very specific detail. This is another one of those details that why is John writing this sentence, but he's not giving us all of the conversation between Jesus and Mary? It's in verse 6. It says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That seems like a really insignificant detail, which is there for a reason. It's there for a purpose. It is no accident that this is what Jesus has filled with water to be transformed into wine. It's no accident he has done this on purpose. This is the light shining through the cracks here, and Jesus is communicating that there is a new thing happening out of an old thing, that there is a new beginning for an ancient way. This is the sign that God is doing something fresh, something new within the old Jewish system. This is him changing the nature of what it meant to follow Yahweh God so that one day we would be able to do the same, so that one day us those who are not Jewish, would be able to follow God. We'd be able to have access in a relationship with Him. And just if, I don't know that I really have time to explain all of this, but, but it's also a deep, deep allusion to Moses. I guess if I did have time, I might tell you that Moses' second miracle, the second thing that he does to show the power and the power that Yahweh has is to turn water into blood. And the Nile River puts a staff in the water, and all of a sudden, all of the Nile River turns to blood. And that is directly sitting next to us in our minds as we read this story, and Jesus transforms water into something else. He transforms water into wine, a new thing, a fresh thing. And it's verses like this and stories like this that turn over our minds that by the time we reach the Apostle Paul in his writings, and when he says something like, death came through Moses and the law, but life comes through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's, it's these stories that help us to even understand Paul and why he's saying that death came through one man, but life comes through another. Jesus is doing a new thing. He's taking the old and making it fresh. He's revealing his glory. He's revealing his identity as this man from Nazareth in whom heaven and earth have collided. Heaven has come to earth. His, the word has come to tabernacle with us. See, what's beautiful about this transformation of water to wine is also that Jesus has the same exact effect as he did that day, as he does in this moment right now in human hearts and human minds. This unique ability to transform us, to change us, to change who we are and who we're becoming, to be more shaped like him, to, to find and have life and life to the full. The beautiful thing about Jesus' work is that it's not just to rescue you, but it's also to redeem you. It's not just to save you from something, it's to save you to something. In fact, the Gospel of John doesn't use the word um, salvation very much. It doesn't say that Jesus came to bring salvation. It says Jesus came to bring life and life to the full. That's what he offers in this changing of the water to wine, is life to the full. And this process of water turning to wine has just as much to do with your salvation as it does to do with the rest of your journey. 
Many of you know uh, my testimony. I accepted Jesus sitting on a bunk bed at seven years old talking to my mama, and that's where we prayed. I accepted Christ. I've been in church my entire life. I started attending this church at 13 years old. In fact, there's a really great picture that I know Pastor Matt has of me when I first became a member, um, and, and I looked like a really awkward middle school kid because I was, okay? You should ask him about it. You don't have to, but it's embarrassing. The point is this. I've been around this church and grown up in this church, and I accepted Christ when I was seven, and this water-to-wine transformation has just as much to do with my life and my journey of following Jesus has just as much to do with my life right now as it does that night when I talked to my mom about accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. This transformation is, is about all of who we are, all of who we're becoming, not just one moment. Jesus' work is not just rescuing you, but it is redeeming you. And it's when we take a step back from stories like this, we begin to shine a light on them, and we begin to see the, the city and the cityscape, the skyline that John is painting, that there's a much bigger story here that he's enrolling us into. And he is showing us the revelation of Jesus that we now have, just like the people in the stories, we now have a choice. We now have a choice. We get to decide who Jesus is going to be in our life. Is he your Lord? Is he a lunatic? Is he your Savior? Is he your King? Because how we respond to someone who just rescues us is different than how we respond to someone who is our King and our Lord. So my question for you as we close is where is Jesus turning water to wine? Where is he taking the simple things and redeeming them for his glory? I actually had a really good conversation yesterday at our men's breakfast. Um, I sat in a group of, of gentlemen that I'm, I'm not going to say how old they were, but they were a little bit older than I was. Sorry if any of you are in here. But we had a really great conversation. We talked about time as an investment, right? And how none of us own time. You don't own time. Like, you're not in control of your calendar. I know you may think you are, but you're not. We submit to time. We don't control it. So how, how are we allowing God to use it? Because we allow God to use every moment. This, this journey of following Jesus and water turning into wine is not just about giving him 15 minutes at the beginning of your day. It's giving him your mind the entire day. It's giving him your heart and soul the entire day. It is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength at all times. And that's not like an action-oriented thing but it's a perspective-oriented thing because this idea of turning water into wine is turning the ordinary into extraordinary. It's turning the simple into profoundness. How can God take these simple moments of your day and use them for his glory? Because he can. He is changing water to wine. He began it that day, and he has continued to this very day, turning water into wine. And so I ask you, where? Where is he turning water into wine? Why don't you bow your heads with me?